spoiler alert for Avengers Endgame. We're going to spoil it in this podcast. Don't listen to this podcast if you don't want it spoiled. And when you leave the theater, don't talk till you get to your car. Because spoilers. The following contains plot spoilers and the comments and opinions expressed herein are for entertainment and commentary purposes only and may not reflect the actual opinions of Geeks Radio or the individual hosts. So don't get mad. It's just a show. In a world where two podcasters decided to review every superhero film ever made, one film made it really easy by including literally every superhero. This is Totally Super. Welcome to Totally Super, where we review every superhero movie ever made. My name is Justin. And my name is Arthur. And today we are doing a review proper of Avengers Endgame. Thank you for coming back to us. If you listened to the the podcast last week, heard great stuff last week, heard a little bit of criticism last week about the, well, why aren't you going through the plot and doing the normal organized review? Well, because we were you know both on a sugar high. From yeah. having just seen it. Yeah, Avengers. seriously. I, I had literally just come out of the film. Uh, this show is going to have, absolutely is going to have spoilers for Avengers Endgame and all of the MCU. This is, I mean, you know, we're going to spoil the F out of this movie because how else do we talk about it? Um, yeah, seriously. So this movie, of course, is uh, is Avengers Endgame. It is the 22nd film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, directed by Anthony and Joe Russo, the Russo brothers, who previously previously directed in the Marvel Universe, Captain America, The Winter Soldier, Captain America Civil War, and Avengers Infinity War. Uh, this movie stars pretty much everyone. It came out in, uh, in April of 2019. It was uh, in the time of this recording. We're recording this on May 1st, 2019. The movie has taken in $356 million stateside for a total worldwide $1.48 one billion dollars that is billion uh so let's see if i remember correctly you your model for a movie starts making money once it has made back double its production cost right that's gen that's generally the the thought lately they've been saying it needs to make about somewhat more than that the reason being especially with movies that are so big on opening weekend um is that a certain amount of that money of course goes to the movie theater. The movie theater has to get some money from those tickets. <clears throat> and then um, after the movie theater gets its money, then the movie has to make back the cost of production. And then the movie also needs to make back the cost of promotion. And my understanding is that the promotion for this film uh, was, um, I think they said it was $200 million was the, was the amount they spent on promoting Avengers Endgame. With a cost and of three hundred fifty-six, the the movie cost three hundred and fifty-six million dollars to make, with a two hundred million dollar promotional budget, meaning that it is right around six hundred million, or, or rather five hundred and fifty million. So it needs to make one point one billion dollars to make its money back. It has so far made one one point four eight one billion. A lot of that is from out of the country. So it is probably just now at a break even point today but that's fine because the movie only opened five days ago this movie yeah is going i to think make- it's fair to say it is entirely possible that by the end of the second weekend this film will have already made half a billion dollars in profit uh yeah no this movie is, is a monster um and we're going to talk about a few things about whether or not this movie is what they call toyetic there's a, a word that was brought about right around the the first or second Batman movies uh, that was toyetic, which was, does this movie 
play well enough to kids that kids will want to then go out and buy the toy of the movie and go play with it. So the question is going to be whether or not this movie is is that. And I, I'm going to have an argument that kind of says that maybe it's not. Um, well, but, let me ask a question before that, because it, it occurred to me, I was thinking about this. Um, is this movie, and I'm actually not being hyperbolic here, I think this is legitimately the case. Is it fair to say that this movie is the single biggest event in cinematic history? Oh, gosh, no, I don't think so. Well, because when you because when you consider the because I'm not just talking about the the fact that it's making a ton of money, I'm not just talking about the lead up, um, the fact that no other film has essentially had 22 other films leading up to it, which then leads to the okay. So if this movie isn't the biggest event, then my goodness, what was the original Star Wars? The and and maybe so it's interesting, right? Because the film cycles, right? What I guess the question is, what constitutes an event? Yeah, I'm sure that That's the bankers are. I'm sure that the bankers are certainly saying so. And I think from mm-hmm. a uh, from a, a narrative wrap up point, it might be. But the fact is, is that this is not going to be the summer of Avengers Endgame. In point of fact, a month from now, this movie, while it will still be chugging along, will be a movie that came out and is gone. Um, mm-hmm. It will be still in theaters for a while, but the the amount of blockbusters that come out. It's just so many and they come so fast. And with this being a spring release, by the time we get to summer, it's just not, I think, going to have the same staying power as like Batman 89. That was the summer of Batman. That the Batman was just always there. It permeated everything. Everybody's wearing Batman t-shirts. Same thing with Star Wars. The summer of Star Wars was, it was in theaters for like six months. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and just kept kept coming back, kept coming back. So I think that, that I mean, for goodness sake, Avengers Endgame is... Just had Captain Marvel a month ago and is going to face competition from Spider-Man Far From Home in July. It's not even the... They're having three Marvel movies in six months, to say nothing of the other movies coming out. So I think that you're going to find that while this movie is something that everybody is going to see, it's going to come and go fairly quickly. That's my thought. Mm -hmm. Yours? No, that's fair. Uh, I Yeah, I think it really, it comes down to how do you define an event? Uh, certainly, we won't know until at least, you know, a few years from now just how much this sticks in our memory. Uh, but right now, I have a feeling that, and I posted this on Facebook to a couple friends, this film has cemented the MCU, and specifically a lot of the Avengers characters like Iron Man and Captain America, as true American myths. If you think about myths as being the touchstones that we use to stories that we use to help define our lives, to help shape our choices, uh, Star Wars definitively an American myth. Um, Harry Potter right now is, I mean, <laughs> Harry Potter is so much a myth that you have people arguing in little tiny elements of the text of Harry Potter to a degree that I have not seen. It, it rivals biblical exegesis. Like, there are rival denominations of Harry Potter being formed right now. Uh, but that one is not an American myth. That one is definitively English, uh, even though it's affected a lot of us here. Uh, so I think it is safe to say that even though comics were very powerful and these comic book characters were powerful to comic book fans when we were growing up, what this whole saga has done is truly cemented characters like Iron Man, Thor and Captain America as permanent 
gods in the American cultural landscape. I'm going to ask a question at the end of this as to whether or not this is the beginning of the end of the Marvel Cinematic Universe and its popularity. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'm going to ask that at the end because I have real questions and I'll, I I have to imagine that there are money morning quarterbacks who are having those concerns as well. Um, but before we do any of that, let's actually review the movie that we have. Uh, Arthur, yeah. would you be so kind as to provide us with the plot summary of Avengers <laughs> Endgame? Okay. So here's the thing. There's really only two ways to do this plot. Either it's a relatively brief summary or we're spending the next 30 minutes talking about just the plot because this was a three-hour film. However, I had a thought, and I have managed to sum it up in a five-act stru- in a five-act structure, not unlike the plays of William Shakespeare. Okay. So, did you write it in iambic so pentameter? Oh, you son of a! I could have totally. I know. In You're, welcome. You're welcome. You're oh, welcome. Everyone, damn, damn be disappointed. Now I have a Arthur. challenge. If you're out there, <laughs> listener, I want you to be disappointed, actively disappointed. I want you to say out loud. I want you to pick up your listening device or look at your listening device and say, Arthur, I am disappointed in you for not giving 110%. Oh, man, I'm feeling a sudden disturbance in the force as though 10,000 voices cried out and won their disappointment. All right, go for it. All right, so here we go. Uh, Endgame is a movie with a prologue and five acts. The prologue is very simple, very quick. Hawkeye is picnicking with his family. They disappear. It is heart-wrenching, and we discover exactly what happened to Hawkeye during the events of Infinity War. Then we move on to Act 1. Tony Stark and Nebula are adrift in space. They are rescued by Captain Marvel, who brings them back. So the gang all gets together to take on Thanos and reverse time. They find him on his garden retirement planet. But he has destroyed the stones already, making the use of the time stone to go back impossible. Thor kills Thanos by beheading him, but it is a hollow victory, and they return to a world that is permanently changed. Act 2. We jump ahead to five years later, where we see what has happened to the world and to the characters in it. Ant-Man finally makes it back from the quantum realm where he was stuck at the end of Ant-Man and the Wasp, and he has an idea to use the quantum realm for time travel. The rest of the act is essentially getting the gang back together to pull off this crazy plan. A certain key elements in this act include Bruce Banner now being able to be the Hulk and keep his wits at the same time, and Tony Stark's reluctance to leave his wife Pepper and their daughter Morgan. Act 3. The Time Heist. Three teams go back to separate moments to collect the stones. They are ultimately successful. Key moments of the Time Heist include Loki escaping from 2012 Earth using the power of the Tesseract, Tony and Captain America retrieving another Tesseract from 1970, during which Tony encounters his father, Black Widow sacrificing her life in order to get the Soul Stone, and, crucial to the plot, Thanos in the past discovering the hero's plan and substituting the Avengers version of Nebula for his own as a mole. Act 4. The heroes return to the present with all six stones. Tony creates a gauntlet, and Hulk uses it to restore all those who were taken in The Snapshare, without changing the events of the past five years. The traitor Nebula activates the time machine to bring Thanos from the past to the present. The climax of the act and the film is an epic battle between Thanos' armies and not only the Avengers, but literally every hero in the MCU showing up to help, including Howard the Duck. Tony grabs the Infinity Gauntlet, 
and snaps his fingers to destroy Thanos and his armies, even knowing that the gauntlet's power will kill him too. Act 5. The Aftermath of the Battle We have Tony Stark's funeral. We also have Captain America going back in time to return the stones to their proper timelines, but he decides to stick around in the past instead and lead the life he always wanted to with Peggy Carter. In the present, that Captain America, now old, shows up to Bucky and Sam Wilson and makes Sam, a.k.a. Falcon, the new Captain America. Credits roll on a final look at Steve Rogers back in the 1940s, dancing with Peggy Carter. Fiend. Very, very, very nice. So what I would like to do, since you divided it into these, I'm going to set little timers here on my telephone, which can do that because I live in the future. And I'm going to give us about five minutes apiece on each of these acts, including two minutes available to us, one minute apiece on the prologue. So this is, uh, or not five minutes apiece, but five minutes for each act as we discussed. So I will Mm -hmm. start on the prologue just by saying, I was startled by the film's beginning. I think the audience is a little taken aback and they've just watched the preview for Star Wars or something. And with no fanfare, no music or anything, there's just a scene starts unraveling on that. Maybe you're just eating your popcorn. You don't really know what's going on. And suddenly there's a scene. It's quiet and it's unraveling in front of you. And you're not really sure even if the Avengers has started. But by the time you see Jeremy, Jeremy Renner, you realize it has. Um, mm-hmm. I love the the banter. I am mystified as to the lack of ketchup as an offered condiment i am (laughs) i am i am intrigued by the family who i loved from age of ultron and i love that you don't see any of them turn to dust you just see the residual dust behind it's terrifying it's terrifying oh is it me now oh yes it's you now go for it oh all right uh it's terrifying go uh i thought it worked very, very well. It achieved a very important thing, which was it needed to set a sort of tragic tone for the film, sort of reestablishing, oh yes, we are re-entering the world we last a year ago where literally half of the world had just died. Um, However, if they had made it too maudlin, if there had been music behind it, like soulful underscoring, if we had seen his daughter actually dissolving, essentially, you know, having like a, having an I don't want to go Mr. Stark moment, uh, it would have been far, far too much. It would have been too much of a gut wrench at the very, very beginning. Instead, the fact that the scene was quiet, it achieved what it needed to do for the plot, it achieved what it needed to do for the tone, but it did it in a way that while it sort of grabbed us and put us into the the realm again, it didn't, uh, it wasn't too much of a roller coaster or, or too much of a, a whiplash. I think to start things off. I thought it was a very fitting start to the to the film. So we get the Marvel logo and we go into the juxtaposition between the situation that Tony finds himself in and the situation that the Avengers find themselves in. Tony is with Nebula who is starting to come around to uh to everyone's way of thinking she's actually being humanized by her experience doing things like playing football with Tony on the ship and and learning how to be kind and learning how to share and put others' needs before her own. It's a, it's a wonderful scene of change for her, which I think is necessary to differentiate her, her from the other version of herself that you meet. Um, and Indeed. I think that I want to say this now, and I want to get your thoughts. Uh, um, well, let's just get to the plot uh, of what happens. Captain Marvel shows up and pulls Tony out of the, uh, out of the quagmire that they're in. And we've seen that the Avengers are 
pretty much like Black Widow has taken on the role of Secretary Pierce, but there's not a lot for them to do, which is driven home by mm-hmm. what's going on in Wakanda, where they're like, look, sometimes stuff happens and we don't get involved. Captain Marvel's like, look, Earth is in a like Earth is kind of more fine than other places. I got to go do stuff. And you just oh, that, see that's five years in the that's five years in the future. Oh, is that? that but, no, I'm sorry. That yet. is five years in the future. I'm sorry. I've jumped to the wrong act. No, I'm sorry. They're all sitting around uh, despondent about what happens. Captain Marvel has uh, has saved Tony, pulls Tony, uh, pulls Tony down. And I think that and I've thought this since pretty much the I pretty much the first Avengers movie that I have not seen that spark of astounding brilliance that can be brought by Robert Downey Jr. Maybe since the second Iron Man, um, he got Mm -hmm. into playing, look how Tony Starkey I can be. And I never quite saw, even in movies like Ultron, which was so about him, the depth of his, of his performance. I got to say he's on his a game. In Avengers Endgame. Oh my gosh, so much. Um, he is the when he says when he just says the word liar, the way he goes after Cap. Um, I am I am I am floored by Robert Downey Jr. in this film and the the amount of of effort he's putting in. He is uh, he's pretty incredible. Um, but then they go and they lop off the head of Thanos uh, in a pretty easy little mission, and and that's what happens. So, what is your thought? about the ease of which that they get Thanos taken care of and and whether or not that is a... I mean, clearly it's not a satisfying uh, conclusion to Infinity War, but how does that work for you as maybe the epilogue scene? Because there's a world where that's where you would have cut like with the big <gasps> moment. They go mm-hmm. get Thanos and what? We got to get the stones. Credits Infinity War. Yeah. And then this is the follow-up to that. What's your I thought? liked it a lot. I think it, it achieved a couple of things. First and foremost, for the past year, all of us have been thinking that the most likely way this was all going to go down was that this was going to be a, a movie about them trying to find Thanos, fighting him off so that they could finally get the Infinity Gauntlet again so that then, at the end of the movie, they could essentially go back to change it so that it never happened. Uh, that is... There is certainly a million worlds in which that would have been the plot of this film. Right off the bat, by having Thanos destroy the Infinity Gauntlet, which actually is very much in keeping with his character, or at least the the Marvel Cinematic Universe Thanos, um, it immediately says, oh, this is going to be a completely different movie than you thought. Uh, In terms of the ease of the battle, I think it does, it highlights just how extraordinarily powerful Captain Marvel is. Like, they were beginning to get into it. At, at the end of Captain Marvel, when she takes on the Kree fleet, you sort of see just how powerful she is. But the recognition that, oh, she is on, like, an Omega level of power that dwarfs even some of the major players that we have seen so far. Um, and the fact that with her help... Yeah, and granted, you know, they caught Thanos by surprise, but with her help, it is so easy for them to overpower him. Uh, that sort of drives home, you know, just how much of a game changer having Captain Marvel in the in the picture is. Uh, the the brief moment of realization, the, the the horrific realization of oh no, we can't change it, was was really well done uh, by a number of people. I loved Thor uh, right after 
just beheading Thanos in a rage, just the way he delivered the line, I, I went for the head. Uh, that is absolutely the moment that you see Thor just completely break. Uh, and I thought it came across very clear. Yeah, so, I think that I want to be clear in what I'm going to say because I'm going to lobby some thoughts, criticism at the film because, you know, that's part of what we do. Uh, it's not... People are going to maybe go, no, this is amazing because the people are emotionally attached to the film and I get it. And you're going to say it's not a problem. And I get it. I'm with you. Not this one. The things I'm about to say are not a problem for me, but they are things that I think are worth criticizing. And the first one is Captain Marvel. I think that she's completely unnecessary to the film. Uh, which bums me out because when I saw Captain Marvel, I thought it was a, it, we talked about it. It was an okay film. It was by no means our favorite. Um, and she is super overpowered by the end. And yet because she's overpowered, they don't, I feel like they're not even comfortable keeping her along with the Avengers because she is so overpowered and it, having her present would make it so that their entire mission would would be fine. And why wouldn't they contact her and go, hey, you are the most powerful of us. Why don't you come with us on this mission? It's super, super important. Like, it'll take you a month mm -hmm. to get back. Fine. It's super important. Come with us. It's it's like, it's key that yeah, you Yeah, we've be got here. nothing but time right now. Like, like, I get that there are things going on other planets, but we maybe have a mission that'll undo the entire problem for the entire universe. So, you know, can you make your way back here, please? Mm -hmm. That being said, I think that the aggregate for her movie is supposed to be, I think, Captain America, the first Avenger. It's a movie out of time that's a prequel to what's happening before the big Avengers movie. And she's maybe the new Captain America. And what I'm getting instead is that they had her movie and they she almost cameos in this film. Um, and I don't like you could do the entire the exact same film without her. And I think that's a problem. Because she was supposed to, like she was supposed to be the precursor to this, and I just think that the movie fails in that regard. Uh, it is in I no means by a no means point. The they kind of painted themselves into a corner because on the one hand they really only had two options after making Captain Marvel and like by saying okay Captain Marvel is going to be a part of Infinity War. Either you make her important to the plot of Endgame, in which case that's sort of doing a disservice to the characters that. You know, she literally just showed up on the scene. We we don't want to see a movie about Captain Marvel right now. We want to see a movie about Cap and Thor and Iron Man and all these people that we've that we've been with for the past twelve years. Uh, so you can't make her a crucial figure in Endgame, but then your only other option is exactly what she became, especially for someone of her power level, which is it's like well that means that you did essentially have to cameo her. Uh, I agree with your assessment that, strictly speaking, she was not necessary for this film. That being said, here's my take on it. Uh, first, in regards to our uh, our review of Captain Marvel, because I was really, I was fascinated by this. Both of us had kind of the same reaction to that film, which was like, ah, oh, this was okay, this was solid. This, I kind of wanted it to be a little better, but all right, that's good. Like, we were both excited for what the film meant, but it didn't really move either of us. Um, I will say that for a lot of my friends and seeing reviews and everything, the level to which it did move uh, several of my friends, most of them women, uh, should, it was one of those I needed to, well, like, while acknowledging my own perspective was that it didn't like profoundly hit me, I do feel that it is worth noting that this movie did have a tremendous emotional impact uh, on a lot of other people. Uh, which leads me to my prediction for the future. In a sense, Captain Marvel's purpose in this film, in Endgame, 
was setting her up for Marvel Phase 4. Because when you really think about it, if Marvel Phase 3, if your three big players in Marvel Phase 3 were Cap, Iron Man, and Thor, my prediction is that Marvel's big players in Phase 4 are going to be Spider-Man, Black Panther, and Captain Marvel. And so because of that, I so I agree with you in that, yeah, she was kind of incidental to this film, but the fact that she was in this film might set her up for success in future films in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yeah, I, I again, I stand by my review in that she's too powered at the end. If you made her marginally less powered, if you made her about Thor powerful, which is still pretty darned powerful, and if she was able to mm-hmm. be crucial to what's going on in this film, I think it would bode better for her. I now have had two films with her, and I'm not excited about her presence because her presence was was not necessary. Um, you compare that to to how I felt about Thor and Cap, both of whom did not get me with their first film, but then their presence in the first Avengers cemented them for me. I really wanted that for her mm-hmm. in this, and I didn't get it, and that was a bit of a bummer. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, we go into the second act. Uh, we uh, have the very... Bold choice. And I'm going to talk about whether or not it's a great choice, but we have the very bold choice of five years later. And I will say in the moment, it's astounding. You could hear the gasps in the theater Mm -hmm. when that comes up, Um, which leads me to this other thought that I have. Is this a film that doesn't give two craps about what comes later and instead says, we're going to give you the biggest, most film we can now and you know, and damn the torpedoes about what happens afterward. Because five years later, I'm going to continue my argument from before about how that kind of breaks the world of the Marvel Universe. We are going to have to whistle past that in such a giant way later in the MCU. It's such mm-hmm. a giant moment. Is it too giant in your opinion? Is it too much? Is it a bridge too far? Would two years later have been enough? Would one year later be enough? Five years is crazy. Your thoughts? I, so first, what you've just described raises a major question to which there is no specific objective answer, which is when you are writing a series or when you're, when you are writing anything, should your priority, should your first duty be to make the single story that you are writing the best that it can possibly be, or to make sure that stories in the future, uh, especially when you're writing in a shared universe, Uh, Do you have a duty not to break the universe so that other people can write their stories without having to go through, you know, having to jump through major hoops? Or do you have a duty to write the best story that you can that you're writing? And again, and people are going to come down on different sides of this issue. I do not think there is a objective answer. Certainly, I agree with you. If this does not break the world in a major way, that will be a major problem. This is not something that you can hand wave away. Uh, And I I don't believe that's what they're going to try to do. The fact that A, they jumped ahead five years, and B, they so specifically had Tony Stark say, okay, bring everyone back, but don't change anything about the past five years. So on the one hand, that that absolutely breaks the universe that we know. And it provides tremendous challenges to future films in the MCU. However, the upside of that is, uh, as there's an old saying that the, uh, the Chinese word for crisis is the same as the word for opportunity. In the same way, I want now to see 
stories that really delve into how how do you deal with a world like that? People come back and, I mean, how many people had their spouses be whisked away, found a way to get married, you know, found a, found new love, got married and have those people? You've got an entire planet of castaway situations right now. Well, it's, you have more um, than that. You have every single person, every single human being on the planet has gone through an enormously horrible trauma. Mm-hmm. You have either lost the person you loved for five years, or you've disappeared and come back to a world that has completely changed over the course of five years. There is not a human being on the planet that should not be undergoing massive PTSD. There should be no Mm -hmm. more movies, no more music, no more sporting events, just like like therapy appointments for the rest of time. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, who's going to go... So when I go... When I watch the the Far From Home trailer and they're just going on a they're, they're going on a trip to Europe, I go, who cares? Who cares mm-hmm. that you're going on a trip to Europe? Like every single friend that you have has a parent who has been traumatized if you're in high school or half of your friends from high school have all graduated and your friends are different and maybe one of your siblings is different and and maybe your parents are divorced and also there's no more infrastructure and like it's just the only way to get past it is to move away from it. And I, and I fear, especially for characters like Spider-Man and Ant-Man. I feel like they are the only really grounded main characters we have left. I think that there, there must be, I hope that there is a repair to the world that is done because I, I have to say five years is just like, look at Cassie. Cassie's grown up. Did she grow up without both parents? Did she grow up with her parents? What, what about when her parents came back? They didn't get to raise her anymore. Like everybody should be remarkably traumatized by what happened. And I don't know if like that's DC's world. I don't need. So, okay. I'm watching. Uh, I'm not even going to what I'm watching. I, I am. I am really bothered by the choice of it being five years. I just I need to this, point out. I'm impressed that we made it act two before to, we made it all the way to act two before we went off the rails. Continue. I'm sorry. I don't feel that this is off the rails, though, because isn't this what Act 2 is about? The world is gone. The world is gone. We can't deal with it. Um, it's it's horrible. We must find a way through it. You know, we went on a date, and, and we were both crying. The Avengers have nothing to do. There's no hero. There's no celebrity. The Mets don't play anymore. You know, what? Oh, do they play next season where half of them are five years older and half of them are the same age? And haven't practiced like what? What? Like it just is a for me. It's just a bridge too far for any future Marvel movies. And I find myself, especially on the second viewing, distracted by that thought. Like, gosh, what are they going to do after this? Um, the first time around, I didn't care. The first time around, I was I was moved by the power of it, which it really worked for this movie. But for the rest of the world, I don't know. I think it's I think it's too much. Um. All I will say is, to add to that, is I agree. Marvel has set up a tremendous storytelling challenge for themselves. I do not want to judge them on... I don't want, I don't want to judge them on whether they failed or not until I actually see the way that they continue. Uh, I think the thing that we're both agreeing on is in order for them to succeed in pulling this storytelling challenge off, it's a very fine needle to thread like i can't even think of how i would do it as a writer myself 
Um, so the odds of their success are probably less than the odds of their failure. That being said, I'm so because of the, but because we haven't seen where they go from here, I'm not going to judge this particular moment just yet. All I'm going to say is, wow, the incidents of this film certainly set up a challenge for them. Yeah, I agree. Uh, the question is, though, in terms of this story, so let's bring it back to how does this impact this story? Oh, it's awesome. Uh, because, like, I know, yeah, exa- and that's the thing, is, look, just about everything we talk about here, uh, if you're looking about, okay, where does the Marvel Cinematic Universe go from here? We have no idea. We have, n- we have no idea whether this film is going to, uh, whether this film is, as you say, going to break the MCU. Is this the moment where the film jumped the shark, where the, where the whole thing jumped the shark? Uh, we, we won't know that for at least a couple years. Uh, that being said, if, let us now imagine then, if we knew, if we knew absolutely this was literally the last Marvel film that was going to be made. So if we take the whole concept of, oh, what happens from here uh, off the table, do these events serve uh, a story of an effective conclusion? And in that instance, I think they do. Yes, no, I, I will agree with you there. Um, this uh, this second act, as we draw to the end of our 20-minute, five-minute section, um, is certainly where the heart and the soul of the film rests, and it's so brave of them. They're, it's like an hour in before they get to anything mm-hmm. that's not this. And this is where a studio, I'm sure, is like, you need to cut this. It's too much. It's too long. We don't need to see all of this. And the Russos and Marvel, to their credit, said, no, we got to keep it in. Even if it makes the film three hours, mm-hmm. this is this is essential to what's going on. Um, this film is a straight up drama for the first two hours and a traditional superhero film for like the last 45 minutes. Yeah. No, and then absolutely- it goes back to being a drama for 15 minutes. Like I've said before about how the best superhero films are not quote unquote superhero films. They're genre films with superheroes in them. Like, this is straight up a drama. This is, I mean, the first two hours of this film, practically, there are some, like, straight up remains of the day, Howard's and, uh, you know, English patient level drama scenes going on. But yeah. I also kind of like that because suddenly it's, it is elevating what we think of when we think of superhero films. And I'm sure we're going to get into this conversation later about whether or not that's a good thing. Um but yeah, on upon second viewing of this film, I was like, wow, the first or the first two hours, they especially if you already know what's happening, they feel slow. Not bad. Not not that they shouldn't feel slow. They just feel slow in the same way that watching a drama feels slow. Moments are given room to breathe. Uh, there's more dialogue than there would be. There's not faster cutaways. Uh, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it is a marked divergence from especially the fast-paced nature of Infinity War. Well, I also think it's worth noting that every character is allowed to change. Tony is the place, Tony lives in the woods where Tony would never live. Thor lives on, again, a nice little retcon that, oh, wait, what we mean to say is that most of the Asgardians are alive and living in, in, in New Asgard. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's yeah. a it's a nice little retcon because last I remember, all of the Asgardians except for Thor were dead. They blew up. Well, I think I, I even think they they mentioned though that they that Thanos only killed half of them. Like that was the whole point. Thanos he, found the Asgardians and he killed half of them, which is what he's done with every other civilization he's encountered. So when he did the snap, did he did the snap not affect people he'd already done the thing with? In which uh, case, did the Asgardians not, like? But 
Okay, so maybe so at the, then we've got maybe twenty five percent of the Asgardians left. Yeah, so that's statistically. So I'm fine with it. Fat Thor, as like I've said before, is amazing. I think he's so great. I ha- okay, so, say your piece on it because this is one that I've upon second viewing, I was like, no, I really have to voice thoughts on it. But go ahead. Okay, my thought my thought on it is that I think that he, once again Thor is required to carry the comedic weight of the film. Um, but I just got to say, I know this guy. I know this guy who's just kind of given up. Um, and at first it seems like they're just playing it like, oh, he's fat and he's he's become kind of a loser now. But underneath it all, you can see the how he's despondent and how he's hopeless and how he's lost all hope. And at the end, um, he is given the chance to, by the end of the film, he's given the chance to have all hope but he doesn't get an easy pass like boom lightning struck me and I'm super cut again it's he has to deal with who he is and and the the ramifications of of being stuck in his you know in his depression in his depression hole for such a such a long time so i think that there's there's something to be said specifically for his performance which i think is wonderful the only part of it i didn't like is his beard i think the beard you know looks a little fake but other than that i i i dug it but clearly you have stronger opinions than i please I do. So first, I will acknowledge and I will agree with you that his weight gain in conjunction with like his beard and the other stuff as a form of showing his arc of just how broken he was. 100% fine. Uh, There were absolute ways to do this in which you showed that he had weight gain uh, and it would have been fine. My major issue with it is, I mean, we can say that, oh, this is such a crucial part of his depression arc, all we like. The fact is, it was played for laughs, and there is very little, like, so a couple major things. First, and I noticed this the second time too, literally one of the last things his mother says to him is, eat a salad. I'm sorry, the only reason that that is put in is to get a laugh. Sure. Uh, also, I'm seeing, uh, so I'm seeing polls online, uh, you know, like on Facebook, somebody put out a poll that was just like, okay, what is your favorite single funniest moment of the film? And there's like 10 options and Fat Thor is one of them. And that one far and away is the most popular, specifically funny move, uh, funny moment of the film. Oh, I think, uh, and, and I think it's hilarious. So I want to know why you don't. And yeah, no, and it is. So my issue is, um, you know, again, so this is one where I'm going to be pulling back and looking at the big picture of this movie in conjunction with everything else. Um, it is, we're really entering a period, like I have friends who specifically were hurt by this film, like who were going in, they were expecting, they were expecting to be able to, to enjoy this entire, you know, to enjoy the conclusion of this experience they were going into. And then they had what was one in a long list of films that mocked them. And, and here's the thing we can. You know, we can say, oh, they shouldn't have felt mocked because this and this. But the fact is, at the end of the day, sometimes if enough people are saying, hey, this hurt me, then you kind of need to look at what you're doing there. Um, to borrow a phrase from you, you I, I've absolutely loved whenever we've talked before about uh, movies that deal with misogyny or sexism. Um, the uh, I love your phrase uh, in that it's like, OK, there's nothing specifically in this moment that is endorsing sexual assault or men's power over women or something. But there's something about this scene that says, as you say, a little rapey. Um, there's this, 
every so the first moment with Thor in that cottage, everything feels a little body shamey. Like, no, I can't put my finger on any one specific thing, but there is definitively a there, yeah, it feels body shamey to me. And does it break the entire movie for me? No, it does not. Uh, however, I don't think it was necessary for the film. And I don't think this is the sort of, and, you know, Lord willing, I don't think we're going to see this kind of storytelling or this kind of comedy done within 15, 20 years. Um, I have a, like, it's entirely possible that people will look back on this film and say, this was a wonderful film, but we'll look back on this moment to the same way that we would look back on wonderful films from the late 80s and early 90s that just had a whole bunch of gay bashing humor in them. At the time, most people were like, oh, that's super funny. Now, on the other end of it, we're like, oh, yeah, that wasn't okay. Doesn't ruin the movie completely, but, I mean, so that's the thing. I don't feel that was okay. So my, and then we'll we'll move on from it, but I... My counterpoint to that, and I don't certainly don't want to take the opinion that it's, it's good to make anybody feel bad, as it's not. Mm-hmm. And and if this movie hurt people, it would be better if this movie did not hurt people. My take on Thor is that specifically, when you're an Asgardian, you have to be actively, actively just punishing yourself with with bad with with bad lifestyle in order to get where mm-hmm. Thor is. That I never got the sense that Thor worked out, went to the Asgardian gym and and made himself work that way. He was just that way. So for the what Thor had, Thor was not fat. He's fat compared to Thor, but he is not. Yeah. You know, they didn't make him fat bastard. They didn't make him a it, giant. Yeah, it was not fat, fat bastard, shallow hal. No. They gave it was, him it was fairly realistic. They gave well, he's not even fat. He's got a giant beer gut he is the definition of a dude who just seriously let himself go he does not have mm-hmm. a a metabolic disorder he does not have he does not have so, like he has depression and ptsd and that part's clear but he does not have um he is he is the victim of his own lifestyle choices and his his lifestyle choices, which are challenged throughout the film, because he's Thor and has a responsibility that he has that he has you know not followed through on. So I feel like mm-hmm. there is an element of it that makes it less not okay, if that's a way to say it, to go that we are not saying, "Hey, look at this fat guy! Look how funny it is that he's a fat guy." We're saying, "Look at the God of Thunder and how he is just." relegated himself to tons of pizza tons of beer tons of sons of nintendo or whatever i like because i'm 50 i guess tons of of whatever it is that he's playing (laughs) tons of Fortnite, and and you know yell basically yelling at at other players on that he's going to come get them because they're bad mouthing him online and he Mm -hmm. has become this kind of a of you know he has become a loser compared to what he was because you know, yeah. because specifically, he is not. He is responsibility. He's the king of these people. He should be the best of them. That they work hard, and and it starts with Valkyrie going. Yeah, he just hangs out and is is self flagellating the entire time, and and mm-hmm. I just think that 
that that makes it less not okay. We're not looking at somebody who's got a problem, a, a weight problem going, ha ha, it's funny, you're fat. Because I, the- I think what it all comes down to for me is because what you've just described in terms of how it is representative of his character arc, as I said before, I think that makes a ton of sense. In the end, what bothers me is that there was a substantial amount of it, not all of it, certainly not all of it, uh, there was a substantial amount of it that was played for laughs. And I think that's, in the end, what bothers me. Had it not been played for laughs, uh, had they shifted the tone of it, I think I would have been way more okay with it. Because I, what I you said salad was makes the a lot of sense too to far. me. I think the eat a salad was the one yes, bridge too far. I, I would go, because, because eat a salad, because really it's only in the, it's really only in two scenes. It's the scene in the cottage and it is that one moment of eat a salad because even the rest of that moment, it's out of character for the scene itself because Frigga is, she clearly notices, oh, you're not the Thor from my timeline, but I still. And he's and embarrassed by it. And yeah, what, it's clear. He's clearly embarrassed. Rene and she, Rousseau and she's was not saying, joking and they kept the, imp- the, the improv line in there. I guarantee that line's possible, on the script. Yeah. I guarantee you that line's because on the script. Because up until that, that point, up until that point, his weight gain in that scene serves exactly the purpose you were saying, which is that everything about him is such that his mother can immediately see, my God, you have gone through something major. How can I help? And he's embarrassed by um, it. And it's, a, yeah, I think. And he's I, embarrassed by it. Like all of that scene is wonderful. And in that scene, you know, one could say that the weight was absolutely part of that. And then there's this total tonal shift with eat a salad that gets a chuckle from half of the audience and again is sort of the it's it's as you say it's a bridge too far and it's it's very low-hanging fruit well and i i and that's why i don't think i don't hate the cottage scene i think the cottage scene is really honest i think it's funny and it's honest if you you know there if you were to see your old ripped friend the first time you've ever seen him like in a while and you go in and he is not only chubby and weak but also like mostly drunk pizza everywhere and, and screaming threats based on his former glory at people who are bad mouthing him in Fortnite. I think that you mm-hmm. as a casual observer would be going, Oh my gosh, what happened? I think, I think that's a legit funny way for Thor to go. Um, this was the division of humor. Humor is where humor is where you think it's going one way and it goes the other way. And then that reaction makes you laugh i think the cottage is fine mm-hmm. i think it's anything after the cottage that that relates to his weight that isn't him being embarrassed is bad and i think eat a, eat a salad is that moment where that's just there yeah, i'm i'm to crack a joke i am more okay with the cottage scene than with eat a salad yeah so we'll agree that eat a salad's bad um so uh so yeah they all get together band gets back together the group has changed and they have to go into the avengers greatest hits um some of which we just the eat a salad sign is in this section but they have to go back in time let's talk about the rules of time travel here because oh my god here's essentially what they want to say let's make it really let's make it really easy what they want to say you could do anything in the past it's not going to change anything everything's being exact no matter what you do in the past not going to change anything you what could, they have done could. is in in essentially they have they have rephrased the argument in Austin Powers to the spy that shag yes the spy that shagged me was number two uh, they have essentially rephrased the argument in Austin Powers two uh, where Basil Exposition is saying oh no time travel is a lot more complicated than that so you 
so actually, you don't actually really need to worry about it. Just, you know, sit back, Austin, and enjoy the ride. And then he looks directly to the to the camera and goes, and that goes for you, too. Yeah, I think that's, that's where essentially you what they've said is they're this. like, yeah. And and as soon as they said that, I was like, I, I have had years of experience of dealing with time travel films that as soon as that happened, I'm like, oh, OK, I know what part of my brain I need to shut off to continue to enjoy this film. Now, I got this from another podcast that said this is actually a theory in time travel that that is the, the grandfather paradox. You go back and kill your own grandfather, then you will never that if you go back and kill your own grandfather, then you will never be born to go back and kill your own grandfather. Therefore, if you go back mm-hmm. and kill your own grandfather, you will just continue to exist. Um, and that mm-hmm. the problem would be returning to your own timeline after that. That would mm-hmm. be the problem is that, yes, you could kill your grandfather and you would continue to exist, but you would be stuck in the wrong place, wrong time. And that is what Tony that, and when he says, what happens? You do it wrong. You pull time through you. There's a lot of funny gags on what they do to Ant-Man. Um, but that is what Tony has has on on the hands. That's what you're able to do with Tony's like little thing is to pull you back as an anchor to your own timeline. That's what the mechanism is. And that's the sense that I mm-hmm. got is that no matter what you do, it affects you. You are pulled back to your own timeline via Tony's cool little mechanism that he's made. So I mm-hmm. I get that. It's going to cause problems later um, with with Cap at the end and with Gamora being still part of it and what is Loki's fate and that that's all going to... So yes, we do eventually just need to go with it um, because by the end of the movie, the time travel questions are not going to make sense if you think about it and we're going to talk about it at the end. Certainly but- the uh, from what I've seen on the, on the social media boards with people talking about the plot and the film... The most major points that are being discussed and debated all hinge on the time travel aspects of it. And that is kind of inevitable whenever you choose to do a storyline that involves time travel. Well, it's you have two two reasons to do time travel. The first reason is to cool do cool time travel stuff. That's not what this is here to do. This movie could be done without time travel. Like there could be another quest that wasn't a time heist where they get like we all thought they were going to do time travel to go back and undo the stones. But if you're not going to undo the stones, if you just need to get the stones back, if Thanos was like, well, Mm -hmm. I scattered them to the five corners of the universe and you'll never get there. Ha ha ha. So they have to get there. Fair point. You you didn't need it for this. The entire point of the time travel was, hey, let's give us Avengers greatest hits and give us a reason to bring Thanos back in the end. That's the only reason that time travel exists. Yeah. Um, and even it was, then, it you was tonally what it, it was tonally very appropriate in that so much of this film was it was a walk down memory lane, which in that aspect of it. So let's let's take the time travel, whether it makes sense or not, and throw it out the window. Uh, seeing some of the greatest hits moments from the Battle of New York, the uh, you know even the moments in Asgard, like it was really cool to sort of go back and it was a way of further reflecting on just how much has happened and just how big this saga is. Um, And of course it is always fun to see, I mean the whole Captain America versus Captain America. And I will say possibly my entire favorite moment in the film in terms of the moment that one of the top three moments that filled me with absolute manic glee was the brilliance of having Captain America walk into a glass elevator which was the set piece for one of the coolest fights in With Winter Soldier. With the same people. <laughs> With the same people in the elevator. And we're thinking, oh my gosh, is this exactly where it's going? And then just the simple thing 
of him leaning down and whispering, Hail Hydra, then showing him walking out, holding the package with a slight smirk on his face. Um, it's just the, uh, there, there are so many things that go into that, that just made me so happy. Plus he and has America's so those ass. Are the, yeah. <laughs> plus he has America's ass. Um, the, uh, I realized the second, watching through the second time, they don't specifically address it, but the fact that, you know, Steve Rogers, this is the same Steve Rogers who, in a, you know, Avengers 2, uh, actually called the others out on their language. The fact that when he sees his earlier self, it's like, oh, you got to be shitting me. Yeah. Um, no, I love it. To me, it's sort of, I think that is true for the character because it also shows uh, just what five years has done to people. Like, so if um, if five years has wrecked Thor to the degree that he's in the place that he is, probably the effect that these five years has had have had on Steve Rogers, he still has an optimism. But certainly that sense of, oh, just stick to all the rules and everything works out fine. Uh, that has clearly, uh, if not gone out the window, at least been deeply whittled down. And we can have a lot of fun if we want to talk about, you know, the Guardians of the Galaxy opening. I do think it's fun to watch Chris Pratt sing, but you don't get the music. That's a really funny gag. <laughs> yes. Um, mm-hmm. uh, the ability to bring back Gamora. Um, you know, we have the whole plot. Uh, I think the entire plot with Nebula is just a way to get Gamora back into the Guardians movies. Um, uh, it is a great uh, way, though, of, I mean, she suddenly Nebula has a has way more of a character arc than I thought she would. Yeah. And, now they're now they're uh, both real shout out to uh, to Karen. Is it Jillian? Karen, Karen Gillan. Gillan. I, I always forget. Karen Gillan. I'm sorry. I'm my first thought is always shout out to Amy Pond. And yes. that is not fair to the actress because she's she's wonderful in this. Oh, yeah. She's really, really good. It, it is. It is a step up from everything I've seen from her before. Um, she is mm-hmm. she, like I love her character now and seeing and having Gamora go through the change she's going to go through. But she's able to be back. I'm going to talk about this at the very end, by the way. Um, it's it's really, really fun to see. Um, I want to put one thing to bed. Somebody said to me, but why is the rules for time totally different when the ancient one is talking to Mark Ruffalo on the on the roof and says, no, if you do this, it creates this horrible other timeline. And let's be clear. She's not talking about changing the past. She's talking about taking away the infinity stones, which hold all of time and space together. And that's why she doesn't want them mm-hmm. all to be gone, because if they're gone you get this destructive the destruction of time and the destruction of the timeline. She's mm-hmm. not saying this is the butterfly effect from changing something. She is saying, if you take these stones away, it creates this bad stuff. And then that's when Banner says, well, if you put the stones back, everything's fine. They're not talking about changing an event. They're talking about taking the stones away. So I just want to make that clear um, because on mm-hmm. second viewing, I heard people criticizing, well, the ancient one said, if you change things, you have this dark, awful timeline over here. That's not what she says. She says, if you take the stones away. So I just want to make sure that we're now, and, clear on the difference there. And essentially there is, uh, you and I are both no stranger to the fact that when getting into nerd debate, and I'm not even using nerd or nerd debate as a pejorative here, uh, the very nature and enjoyment of nerd debate uh, is going back and forth about things that, yeah, there's really no 100% correct answer for. It's the whole who would win in a fight, Captain Marvel versus Superman. Um, there's no right answer to that. The point of a nerd debate about that is the fun of just coming up with different ideas and things, you know, throwing back and forth against each other. However, you and I both know that in nerd debate, is it, it is entirely people, possible for people to really start sticking to their guns on things. 
And let me tell you, there is no more fertile ground for nerd debate, uh, I would say, in possibly all of superhero lore or sci-fi lore or fantasy lore. There is no more fertile ground than how the hell does time travel work? Yeah. And and we are certainly seeing that. So so for all those of you out there who are thinking about this. You're wrong. No, I'm kidding. And thinking about time. No, it's not that you're wrong. It's just that the, you know, I would say the... The way that I will only say that the way I have found that actually allows me to enjoy uh, movies and stories that enjoy time travel in them better is to say, you know what, uh, as my as my American history professor said when she was describing economics, she said, if you try to look at it head on, it completely makes no sense. If you sort of just look at it sideways and get the general picture out of the corner of your eye, it's it's a lot better to do it that way. Well, and uh, we're going to so get into the next that... to the next act, which I think is really where this is all going to come to a culmination. I do just need to point out before we go there, Loki stepping away with the Tesseract. What does that mean? We now have a Loki with the Tesseract out there. Well, it means we now have a Loki television show. Yes. Um, uh, how that's going to work and what that's going to be about, I don't know. But this is not the Loki we know and love. Let's keep in mind, mm-hmm. this is not the Loki who has who has come through so much that he is now, you know, awesome brother to Thor by the end. This is post-Avengers Loki. Um, mm-hmm. It's worth noting, he is not the Loki of Thor Ragnarok, who's who's just like, I just now I almost said Amy Pond, just like Nebula has gone through enough mm-hmm. that he has become more of a good guy slash anti-hero. He is, yeah. he is. So maybe that's what we'll see in the TV show. Yeah. Before we jump out of the act, there is one thing that we need to talk about, and that is the death of Black Widow. Um, uh, yes. In order to achieve the Soul Stone, we have uh, Clint Barton has to essentially fight with her on the cliff on cliff uh, Clint on the cliff about which one of them is going to live, which one of them is going to die. Incredibly tense. You wonder who it's going to be, and eventually she, she gives her life and and she falls down, and he gets the Soul Stone. I want to talk about the ramifications of that. It, now I think now is a good time to talk about it. Um, one, it's 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 a moving scene and it's good that she, it's good that Mm -hmm. she is able to do something heroic, but I've read a number of articles saying that poor black widow has been so ill served by the Avengers movies. And this is just another example of that. She went through so much in the five years. Her character was changed. She was the de facto leader of the Avengers, having the problems that she was having, not knowing what to do. She had become through all of this. And then for her to die, even heroically at the end, feels like another kind of F you to Natasha, who frankly, in the first movie got like kind of a good scene. In the second movie, there were some real problems with what Whedon did to her. And then here she is by the time Tony shows up, she it's like Tony's back and she's relegated to the background until she dies. And I've seen people call this an example of fridging. Even if it's her doing it willingly, even if it's her doing it heroically, we again have the female character who's really interesting is the one who's killed in a pantheon of male characters. You got to kill her too. Um, Was it necessary? Was it the right choice? Should it have been her? Should we have not done it because we need to give her more of of an opportunity in the future to show what she can become? I know that Black Widow's got a movie coming, but is it is it the right choice? Is it problematic that she's the one who dies or that they kill her at all? Especially after they killed 
another strong woman in the last movie in the same way. <laughs> oh gosh, I don't know. Um, so here's the thing. Yes, I've seen the the same sort of thing. I've seen people say, uh, you know, not without validity. So what's of course the single childless woman, you know, needs to die so that the you know that the guy with the nuclear family can be happy. Uh, which you know there is validity to. But on the other hand, uh, first to address is it fridging? I think that really just comes down to how you define fridging. It didn't strike me as fridging because to me it struck me as a conclusion of her character arc. And even though that conclusion of the character arc did serve to provide emotional fodder for the other characters in the film who were predominantly male, um, to me fridging is when a character through no agency of her own is killed for the sole reason of creating emotional fodder for the men. Uh, and I And by that strict definition, I don't think this applies. This was a conclusion of her arc, uh, as well as um, clearly a moment of agency for her. Uh, I mean, if they had both fought and Hawkeye had been the one who went off the edge, then an argument could have been made that, well, of course, an argument could have been made that, wait, so you're just saying even though she's a super powerful spy character, like you're telling me in a one-on-one uh, martial arts fight, of course the man is still the one who wins and gets to have the heroic self-sacrifice moment. And, like, that's and something I that think, could have happened you know, to, had they gone the other way. To argue out of both sides of my mouth, I think that, you know, while an argument can be made of, of you know, you're saving, you're, the single woman has to die so the person, the, the man who has the nuclear family can live, I think an argument could be made that taking the man and woman out of that, you say the person and the person, um, there is also a valid argument to say, you know what, if there are children who are counting on you, um, that yeah. that you that that not that your life is worth more or has more value, but has but has mm-hmm. additional responsibility, especially that they are considered to be family to Nat as well. And Nat knows that, you know, these kids who she loves as well are going to lose a father. The only other kid in the movie also loses their father. And Cassie becomes uh, an older teenager. So basically you're saying fathers don't get to raise their sons or sons and daughters in Avengers Endgame. You just get rid of yeah. all the fathers. And an argument can I mean, be made yeah, there. Yeah, take out the male, female. Like if if I were single and it was you and I on Vermeer having to make that decision, um, to me, like even in that situation, philosophically, it would be so clear, like to the degree that I would be willing to bet I might even be able to convince you without having to resort to us fighting each other to get to the edge because it is so clear. It's like, dude, you've got a wife and kids. It's just me. Like this is this is kind of a no brainer uh, if you if you whittle it down to to that bare bones. Um, and that was certainly what I like as soon as the as soon as the uh, as soon as the question was raised in the film, my first thought was, oh, you know, in terms of good for the world, you know, in terms of good moving forward for the characters, it does make more sense for Natasha because, especially because you just started the film with Hawkeye losing his family. And then Hawkeye's the one who tests the time machine by going back and almost gets the chance to see his kids. Um, I mean, if Hawkeye had been the one who went off that cliff, then it would have been kind of a, 
if Hawkeye had been the one who had gone off that cliff, then you would have needed to take away those previous other scenes because otherwise it just would have been unfair for what you're setting up to the audience. Yeah, I, I'm, um, I'm going to say... Is not me, this is not me saying that there's no problem with the scene. Like, all the counter arguments are totally valid. This is definitely going to be one of those things that, you know, we're going to talk about the okay versus not okay moments of this scene. Uh, not just because, not if there's any right or wrong answer, but these are the debates that we have so that moving forward, we can all write better stories in the future. Well, and I think that ultimately my my complaint is that this scene was unnecessary. You know, it would have been just as fun to see them, you know, figure out a different way to get the soul stone. Or once the soul stone's been, you know, gotten to find a way to cleverly retrieve it from Thanos to repeat the same beat as last time. It wasn't as moving. It felt like a repeat of the same beat. And with everything that happens at the end of the film, I almost just forgot that Nat died here. And I think that's a problem. She's one of the Avengers. She should be given the same weight as everyone else. And I don't feel that her death is given as much as maybe it needed to be given. And it causes real problems when you get to the end of the film, which we'll talk about. Let's get to the end of the film. Um, we have a massive battle and it's awesome. Last time we talked about how awesome it was. Listen to our last podcast to hear us talk about how incredible it is. The moments that just pile upon moments, pile upon moments, pile upon moments. Oh, there's still moments I want to talk about, about this. All right, sure. Give me, give me, give me your top ones. All right. So here's my top things. First and foremost, one thing I noticed, uh, I do need to draw attention to the fact that, uh, there are, we have moments when we're watching films and the, to me, my absolute favorite moment in a film and superhero films are really good at creating this when done right is a moment of something that both storyline wise is so perfect and is filmed so great and everything that like there becomes a catch in my throat and I start crying, not out of any kind of sadness, but just out of how how wondrous the moment is. Um, and I feel the moment of, we see that fantastic panorama of Cap standing alone, facing off against the entirety of Thanos' army, beaten and battered, but still standing. And the moment that he gets the little, uh, that he gets the communication from Sam. And in that exact moment, as I'm starting to piece together and I'm saying, oh my gosh, they're all coming. Because in that moment, it wasn't just me thinking, oh cool, Sam and some other folks are coming. In that moment, instantly, I was like, holy God, it's going to be everyone. And then they showed it giving, you know, nice slow camera moments to every single hero showing up. So again, it served the purpose of the story in showing all of the powerful heroes showing up. But it also was, again, honoring every single other person who had contributed to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So it both did something wonderful within the story as well as from a meta perspective. Um, I need to give a shout out to that moment. To me, that is one of my most, most uh, I mean, it's got to go, it's got to be one of my top 10 favorite single moments in all film. No, it's glorious. Uh, was, was it probably is, that it is glorious. Seconds. And the moment continues when you're absolutely right. It gives everybody a chance. You have this, this very convenient, but still amazing moment with all the women, uh, which Mrs. J came home and she was like, uh, yeah, absolutely. That is, that is the, my favorite moment of the whole film, maybe my favorite moment in all of the MCU mm -hmm. is all of the women standing together. Yeah. Story. I want to, it's interesting. So, uh, so Kelly, my wife, she, she loved the film as well. 
Um, we were talking about that moment, and I mentioned in the last episode, I absolutely loved that moment. Was it clearly an engineered moment? Yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, and I'm sure there's plenty of people who could call that moment pandering. Uh, to me, and I said this before, to me that moment was not just a, oh, here, here's this little scene with all the women. To me, that moment was a declaration of intent. That was Marvel saying, yeah, we're not backing away from this. We're going to keep going in this direction. Uh, and, you know, that might be wishful thinking on my part, but that's certainly what I saw in that moment. Um, and so I absolutely adored it. Kelly, she actually said that, you know, and she has not seen all of the Marvel films, but she adored Captain Marvel. Uh, and for her, she said in that moment, she said, you know what? I've actually felt pretty, you know, as a woman, she was saying, I felt pretty well treated by the Marvel films, you know, especially with having Captain Marvel. She says, that moment actually wasn't as necessary for me to the degree that it honestly felt a little saccharine and a little too much for me, which I could also see. Uh, so there's a, you know, so it, it, it is definitively a moment that has engendered a lot, ah, engendered, ah, uh, that has created a bunch of different reactions. Uh, and to me, it's, as with so many moments in film, I'm really interested to see what the emotional reactions that all sorts of different people had to it. Uh, the last thing I'll say with the, this moment, watch, or not that moment, but the, the battle itself, is going back and watching it a second time, the only downer for me is they did such a gr- great job of including everyone. You know who we don't see fight at all in that final battle there too is both Hulk and I think Rocket like you just you see them get rescued by Ant-Man and that is literally it for the entirety of the film like you don't see Hulk rampaging or anything like that you see so many other great characters but for whatever reason those two maybe they were left on the cutting room floor that's um, interesting but that was I didn't notice thing. but now that yeah. you, now I'm going to look for it when I come back cuz I I I I didn't mm-hmm. notice that um I would say that that the battle was wonderful, but I think that you are especially on repeating viewings, you have emotional moments versus credulity. And what I mean by that is is you have the moment with the women that is so beloved, um, but it's true. You're like, ah, that's um that's unlikely that they would all be there, but it's cool that they're there. Okay. And oh, they all show up at once. That's unlikely that there's already an army ready to go, but it's so cool that they're there and and oh yes, it's uh, uh Captain American can pick up the hammer and throw it and call it back to him and use it perfectly. That's unlikely, but okay, sure, we'll go with it. And there's it gets to the point where on first viewing, the movie is giving me everything I want, and it's just like here, yeah, go ahead, have it, go here, have it. And in that way, it plays out a little bit like the series finale of a TV show. In that you get to the series finale mm-hmm. and you can throw the rules out a little bit. Just go, you know what? Fine. Here. Yeah. Cap can do this now. Cap can pick up the hammer. I'd say that's a total. I'd say that's a totally apt comparison. Um, And and so by the end of the second viewing, I'm still loving the moments, but I am just a little bit going, well, it's convenient or sometimes decidedly inconvenient about things that happen. I'm going to I'm going to gloss over act five which is beautiful, but it's exactly what you think it's going to be. Act five is a heart-wrenching, gut-wrenching funeral and and the return of Captain America. I postulated beforehand, I postulated for a while that I think this is what they were going to do with Cap. 
give him an opportunity to have a happy mm-hmm. ending. The Caps ending should not be that he dies. Um, and they did what yeah. I thought he was going to I do, which that. made it slightly less impactful for me because I was like, that's what always what I felt they were going to do with Cap. That it didn't serve. Isn't that interesting how sometimes there are sometimes when you think, oh, this would be the perfect thing for them to do. And then they do it. And you're like, oh, yeah, that's great. Oh, I'm so satisfied. And other times when you're like, oh, this would be the perfect thing for them to do. And they do it. And then you're like, oh, well, I kind of figured it out ahead of time then. So yeah, it's the surprise. If I didn't have podcasts where I've been talking about it forever, I might have totally felt different. <laughs> um, but the fact that I've taken yeah. the, you know, I've taken two, three hours of my time discussing that as a possible ending. When it happened, I was like, okay, I got it. Um, okay. Yep. Uh, it's wonderful. It's emotional. Not a dry eye in the house. Um, by the numbers, the the compositing isn't awesome, frankly, on the second time around. I kind of noticed when they were at the funeral, I was like, none of these people were ever here at the same time, were they? Clearly, they just shot huh. them all in front of green screen. And I can kind of tell. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but beautiful callbacks. Uh, my problem is, and I want to get to this right at the very end. We'll talk about it more next episode. Um, but there is a sense as we get to the next episode and we talk more about breaking, breaking the world that, that where the film ends, ends with you doesn't quite jibe. And the questions that I'm going to ask next time that I want to hit are a, did Tony have to die? Did Nat have to die? Is it possible for Captain America to have had the ending that he had um, and of course, what is next for the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Because I think that the answers are, when you really think about it, they're not as clear as the movie makes it. And that's a problem when you strain credulity, is that... Well, to me, the the big thing at the end, I, I, like, I agree with all of those. To me, the big question I'm left with upon reflection is, so they now have a fully functional quantum time machine, somebody who can make all the PIM particles that they want and a clearly established pattern now that screwing around in the past does not really negatively impact either the past or the present. Uh, so that is sort of a, that's, and I, and I was like, that is such a game breaker that that one's really going to have to be kind of waved away because from every film beyond this, if something goes wrong, it's like, well, we've got the Pym Particle time machine. We could always just use that. Well, including this film, which is going to be part of what we talk about next time. Um, but the end is wonderful mm-hmm. and it's beautiful. The music is great. The moments are wonderful. The acting is good. As I said before, that... And for everyone who... Sorry. And for everyone who was wondering, that one kid st- or that one adolescent standing at the back of the crowd in the funeral, which none of us recognize, or props to you if you recognized it the first time around, I had to go look it up, was the kid from Iron Man 3. Which totally makes sense. Which absolutely makes yeah. sense. Um, and it's which so- when I found that out, I was like, oh, that's beautiful. I love that. And it's so awesome. It, it made it worth the confusion I had. And, and you know, everybody is there to, to see Tony out and have a wonderful funeral for Tony and not Nat. And it's it's a pretty it's a it's a you're you're not wrong you're not wrong it's a, it's, that, it's like it's, yeah. Tony Tony got a Tony got a lovely wreath of flowers with a proof that Tony Stark has a heart yes. and people watching him Nat got a bench thrown into the lake yeah I think I think that I think that what it ends up being is that the funerals were paid for by ratio of the stars salaries um yes I, I agree with you um but it's uh it's it's again we we joke it in the moment especially first viewing it's crushing mm-hmm. i'm crying everyone's crying it's it works for 
that first view of the film, which is, I think, all they cared about. And we'll talk about that next time. Mm -hmm. But finally, we've had to say, on a scale of one to five Infinity Stones, how would you rate Avengers Endgame? So I thought about it. I know exactly how I wanted to rate it at the end of the first viewing. Um, and I've given serious thought to it since then. Um, but I think my rating still stands. This is this is a solid five for me. Um, it's I think back to what you said after uh, this was good God going on more than 10 years now um, when Return of the King came out. Uh, you said of the three films, Return of the King has the biggest problems it was also your favorite of the three films. Uh, it was um, other people's favorite. My favorite of three films is the is the two towers, but it is it is it, but it hits the highest highs, but also has the biggest problems. Yeah, it yeah that maybe that's it's it certainly it had it it had the biggest problems, but also had some of the most major successes. Um, this film, especially upon second viewing, no, legitimately is not without its problems. Uh, first, you've got the plot issues. Um, there is the fact that. The thing about a drama is there are many dramas that I've seen in my life that are beautiful and I loved and I've carried with me, but I normally don't go back and watch dramas a second time. Um, the final hour, or really the act four of this film, I could watch again and again and again. This is not a movie that I'm going to sit down and watch again in its entirety anytime soon. This might not even be a movie that I want in the background while I clean the house because it's a whole lot of talky-talky. Um, so, and I'm sure we'll talk about this next time around too, is, uh, you know, so does it, is that what superhero films are supposed to be or not? Um, however, with all of that being said, uh, I remember how I felt when the movie was done. Uh, I remember everything that's lead up led up to this point, the sheer ambition of everything leading up to this movie and what they tried to accomplish in the film itself. Uh, it is indisputably going to have a major impact on the film industry. It's, it's going to be seen as a major milestone. Uh, so with all of that combined, even knowing its issues, I'm still going to give it a five. Um, I also uh, want to want to give this. It's, uh, it's so interesting. Let me go back. The, I want to talk about my infinity war. A review where I think I gave the film 4.5 because I didn't love it when I, I think so yeah. when I first saw it. Can I tell you I watched that movie? What no? You first I'll tell you you first gave it a five and then on second like our first reactions we both gave it a five. On our second ones you'd walked it back to a 4.5. Yeah, I'm gonna walk it back to a five. Infinity War. Interesting. Um, I have watched so many times. If I want to watch a Marvel movie right now, I just pop that in because like I could watch all the other Marvel movies or just watch them all in one. In Infinity War, and and Infinity War is is a five because it is just it's giving me everything I want. Everything I want is in that mm-hmm. film, and it's awesome. I love Infinity War, and it will it will be rewatched forever and ever. Endgame is not Infinity War. It's interesting that it was eventually it was originally going to be Infinity War Part One and Infinity War Point Two, and the Russo said we don't like that because this is a different film and i have to it's a completely different film this is a vast oh i do remember you saying that it is a vastly different film yeah um so that being said the question is does it get five when i first watched this last week i said that this movie was a five is it still a five because i do remember how i was moved i do remember how much it moved me and how much i was affected by it 
And it comes down to the question of, do I want filet mignon when I've gone to get a burger? Which is what we've always said is kind of our allegory for, is this giving me what I want versus giving me something better that I didn't necessarily want? I was taken aback by the tonal difference in this film, by how much uh, it was striving to do more and be better. I was taken aback by by the quietness of the first part and just that it elevated superhero films. So the question I need to ask myself is, did I want it to be elevated in the way that it was? And I think I'm going to have to say no. I think I'm going to have to okay. say for the very reasons you said, this is not going to be on repeat. Um, and it's not going to be something that I watch over and over again. And it is not good enough to be, you know, there are lots of movies like that. I don't watch Schindler's List on repeat. I don't watch Sophie's Choice on repeat. I don't tend to watch The <laughs> Crucible on repeat. But those are movies that are not called The Avengers. And those are movies that are mm-hmm. not the season finale, the series finale of the Marvel Universe should give me everything I love about the, the Marvel Universe. And instead, this movie gave me some of the things I love about the Marvel Universe and then a lot of other stuff that I love for totally different reasons. Uh, Downey is on his A game. Evans is on his A game. It's a beautiful movie. The music is great. The direction is great. But it's just not what I wanted, um, ultimately. And I would give it a 3.5 for that, except that it gave me so much of what I wanted in the end. And it's so artfully done. I feel like it's just, I'm going to give it a 4.75. I'll split the difference, but I can't give it the five that Mm -hmm. I would give Infinity War because it's just, I don't want to walk away from, like you said, how is this movie if it's the end of the MCU? Well, if that's the case, the end of the MCU is a tragedy. And that's not what the MCU was. It's not supposed to be a tragedy. It's supposed, I mean, we got DC for that if we want a tragedy. This is a movie that's supposed to, this is a a 22 movie, 22 part movie that's supposed to make me smile. And at the end, it didn't. And while while it was effective at the end, the movie is punishing. And it's just not, that's the reason I mean I can give it a five. I, it's it's not logical, but it's how I feel. Does that make sense? Am I off That's base? That's totally fair. Yeah, 100%. I have, I have two thoughts on that. Um, and yeah, what you say completely makes sense. The first is I'm reminding, uh, I'm reminded of, uh, and hey kids, this is a real walk back through memory lane. Back in the 80s, uh, you know, when Pepsi was first becoming a major thing, Pepsi was beating Coke in all of the taste tests. And that caused Coke to really freak out, and they had to come out with new Coke, which everybody hated, so they eventually brought it back to the old thing. Uh, But the thing that was so interesting in that was with the taste tests, it was always, okay, here is Pepsi and here is Coke. Go ahead and take a sip from each of them. Which do you prefer? And everyone was going Pepsi. But then somebody started doing another test, which was, okay, here. Here is a case of Pepsi and a case of Coke. Take it home and drink these sodas over the course of the week and then tell us which one you preferred. And in that one, Coke ended up winning a lot. Pepsi, people loved the first sip of it because it was so sweet. But because it was so super sweet, its value diminished over time. Whereas Coke was one that you could, you know, nurse and enjoy for a lot longer. Um, I would say in that sense, and this is not a complete allegory, but Infinity War is very much, it is Coke. Uh, it is, as you say, it's, yeah, the rewatchability of that is huge. Um, Endgame might be more Pepsi in that 
I think I enjoyed the experience of watching Endgame just a little bit more than I enjoyed the experience of watching Infinity War. Uh, but I'm much more likely to have Infinity War on while I'm cleaning the house. Uh, and again, whether or not that makes one film better than the other comes down to should a, comes down to how much value you place on first impact versus continued. Uh, and oh, and I completely forgot what the other thing was. I was I was so entranced by my Coke Pepsi metaphor. Well, yeah, you made me want to Coke because I've been on this silly diet where I can't <laughs> drink any sugar. Oh, that's what it was. That what it was. Continuing the food vein. Uh, I really like your. You go to a place that has great cheeseburgers, you order a cheeseburger and they give you filet mignon. Uh, And I'm thinking there's sort of, there's a spectrum of how people react to that. And there's no wrong way to react to it. The first end of the spectrum, which is I think where you are at uh, in that general area is this filet mignon is great, but I ordered a cheeseburger. That's what you guys are known for. I came here, I ordered a cheeseburger. I wanted a cheeseburger. Uh, Towards the middle of the spectrum is I came here ordering a cheeseburger, but man, this filet mignon is fantastic. Uh, you know what? Okay, I'm. I guess I'm glad you gave me the filet mignon. Uh, and then on the fi- on the far end of the spectrum is I've been coming to this place for cheeseburgers for a long time. But you know what? I always wish I've been hoping for a long time that they would try some filet mignon. And then suddenly you get the filet mignon. It's like, oh my gosh, this is what I've always wanted this restaurant to be. Uh, and I, I feel like I'm a little bit more towards that end of it. I mean, you know me. I'm the artsy-fartsy one. Uh, I've, been, I've been waiting for fantasy, sci-fi, and superhero stuff to, to quote-unquote elevate themselves into art uh, for a while. Um, and I say that facetiously. But I just I wanted to play with your, with your metaphor a little no, bit more. No, I think, I, think I think that's fair. I'm closer to the middle, but yeah, you're right. I'm more toward, I'm, I'm more toward the side that you say I am. Uh, how do you guys feel? Uh, we have a Facebook page. You can jump on there and you can tell us how you feel. Mm-hmm. Um, and next week we have uh, something cool. It's going to be a little different than what we normally do, where we talk about the implications, the questions, and and what it means uh, for the ending for the movie to have ended where it does. We're going to talk about the upcoming shows, the upcoming movies, what we know about the future of the MCU, and we're going to speculate as to what this movie could mean for that future. But for now, my name is Justin. And my name is Arthur. And hey, and oh, I hey almost said your line believers. for you. I'm sorry. Oh, you almost said it. No, you know what? Let's let's shake it up. Go ahead. And hey there, true believers. Stay super. <laughs> you like how I said it really slow? No, to it was sort really, of like really good. It was slow and very yeah, filet Stay super, folks. It was very good. Wrap it in bacon. <laughs> Bye, guys. Now that you've finished the show, be sure to subscribe so that you never miss an episode of the Totally Super Podcast. Also, if you like this, you should head over to geeksradio.com or search Geeks Radio wherever you listen to podcasts. There you can find Trek Off, the not safe for work Star Trek podcast with Justin and Alexia. So search for Trek Off, search for Pop Off, search for Geeks Radio, and just thanks for joining us. This has been a presentation of Endlight Entertainment. 